So if you're keeping score, we had James Earl Jones doing the Lord's Prayer and then a little uh, John Lennon. That's a good start. Would you agree? So uh, yeah, we are in week two of a series uh, called The Prayer. And in it, we're exploring the most famous prayer in the world. It's the prayer that Jesus instructed his first followers, the disciples, to pray. And, And what's so powerful about the prayer is it actually allows us to see a bit how Jesus saw the world and how he wants his followers to see the world. In this prayer, Jesus offers answers to life's biggest questions. We'll throw them up on the screen. Uh, Who is God? Who am I? And what am I here for? Who is God? Who am I? And what am I here for? Here's, Here's what Jesus says one day when his disciples ask him how to pray. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Then he says, give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Or you might have grown up saying, you know, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Same idea. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And so what we're arguing in this six-week series is that Jesus offers us six images to, again, help us see how he sees the world. Six images that he wants to use as as we think about prayer. And those images are, in case you missed them, uh, there's the image of Father, which we talked about last week. There's the image of the kingdom of heaven, which we're going to discuss with our time today. Then the name of God, uh, the daily bread, forgiveness, and temptation. So today we get to talk about heaven. But before we do that, um, last week we talked about how Jesus wants us to pray to our Father. And more than a few of you, yea, verily, an avalanche of you, emailed me and said, you know, you appreciate that that's what Jesus says, but that image is something you really struggle with because of your relationship or lack of relationship with your Father. And so because I wrote this response so many times, I thought, I'll just do it for all of you. Here we go, right? So if, if you were there and thought, I should email him and throw the flag, here you go. This is for you. So um, if you had that thought, here's something to consider. When Jesus instructs us to pray to God the Father, he's using a metaphor that we can understand. And I think this is important. Jesus is accommodating his language to our capacity. And so he describes something that we have a reference for, like a father, and then he points to it and said, okay, God is like that. God is like a father. But if we're honest, God is not like any father that we've ever known. He's the ideal father who never, ever, ever gives up on his children. He loves them. He provides for them, and he instructs them in a way of life that will bring them life. Jesus wants us to pray to our heavenly father who is always in our corner and always on our side. And so that, that a bit from last week. But today we get to talk about why I think Jesus includes the image of, of heaven twice in the prayer. So he tells us to pray to our heavenly Father. And then he also says to pray that your kingdom, God, would come and your will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So the question I want to kind of drive our time today, what exactly did Jesus mean when he said heaven? And my guess is that what we're going to explore will surprise many of you, especially if you grew up in church like I did. 
Because I was taught, or maybe better caught early on, that Jesus came to earth primarily to tell people how to get to heaven when they die. And armed with that assumption, I spent a lot of time reading those accounts of Jesus' life and found what I was looking for. But in the years since that time, I've come to realize that I missed something critical, that when Jesus says something like, so that you may enter the kingdom of heaven to someone, or maybe so you may have eternal life, he doesn't mean so that you may go to heaven when you die. When Jesus talks about eternal life in the kingdom of heaven, he isn't talking about the place we go when we die. What he's saying is way more helpful and inspiring and disruptive than that. The idea of going to heaven when we die assumes that heaven is somewhere else, right? We imagine a place filled with harps and clouds and choirs and white robes and streets of gold. And, and if we're honest, this leads us to wonder, so is like heaven a church service that goes on forever, right? You ever had that thought? And then if you're like me, you had the second thought, like, okay, if it's a church service that goes on forever, is there popcorn served? Because, I mean, that, that would be a thing, right? And if not, like, how bad is our other option really? Okay, so um, as it turns out, this vision of heaven isn't really what you find in the Bible. And so to understand why we think of heaven like we do, I want to reintroduce you to somebody you probably studied in high school, and some of you are going to have flashbacks, so I apologize, it'll be a short aside. I want to reintroduce you to a Greek philosopher named Plato. And uh, he lived 428 to, 430, or to 473 BC, and I think he had a great haircut. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, Plato was arguably the most influential Western philosopher of all time. Unfortunately, uh, he divided everything into two separate realities. An upper reality where he believed that the unchanging ideals of everything we've ever known exist. He called them the forms. So in this upper reality, you'd have the ultimate form of cat, the ultimate form of dog, the ultimate form of giraffe, the ultimate form of hippopotamus, if you're tracking with me. Okay? And then there was the lower reality, and that was sort of our world, the material world, the physical world. And the world in which we inhabit is filled with, with just sort of copies of those ultimate realities which are not here, they're in that, that upper world. Um, and, and then he believed that humans have souls, or really our souls, who used to live in the upper world, but we've been trapped in this lower material world. We're sort of enslaved in the prison of our earthly bodies. And he believed that when we die, we shed the earthly bodies, we leave behind the material world, and then we enter the ultimate spiritual reality. And, and so that was Plato, and that was hundreds of years before Jesus. But unfortunately for us, Plato's thinking was imported into the church in the 4th century by an influential leader named Augustine or Augustine of Hippo. And he lived 354 to 430 AD. And he didn't believe that the physical world was evil, but he did believe that the material world was inferior to the ultimate spiritual reality. And he led literally centuries of Christians to think of heaven as the place where life with God really begins. And by implication, this earthly life doesn't count for much. And that's why Jesus was sent by God to sort of rescue us and evacuate us from the confines of the material world. So today, um, what I want to do is introduce you to a different sort of way to think about heaven and I want to argue that this is the way Jesus thought about 
heaven. And, and spoiler alert, it is a game changer in a number of ways. And so to show you what I mean, I want to take you to a conversation Jesus had with a man 2,000 years ago during the time he was teaching, during the time leading up to his crucifixion. The man he's talking to would have been a Jewish man who would have come from, from a Jewish background, as had Jesus. Um, and Jesus is approached one day, and here's the conversation. Uh, so now, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And once again, when I was growing up, I was trained to read this question, what good thing must I do to get into heaven? And if that was what the man was asking, this is like the perfect time for Jesus to give a straightforward answer. He could say, well, it isn't really anything you do. You're going to come to a spot where you're going to place your faith in what I'm going to do on the cross. That's how you get to heaven. That's how Jesus would answer that question. But that isn't what Jesus says. Jesus' answer betrays that there's more going on with this question. In fact, you can see almost immediately that what this man is asking isn't about where he goes when he dies. Here's what he says. Jesus says, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good, speaking of God. He says, if you want to enter life, obey the commandments. So the, the man asked Jesus about eternal life, and Jesus ends up pointing him to something he just simply called life. Jesus simply doesn't define eternal life as getting into heaven later, but somehow entering life now. And then he tells him that you do that by keeping the commandments. Well, the man, not surprisingly, from a Jewish background, he asks a really critical follow-up question. He says this, which ones, the man inquired. And that's really a fair thing to ask because there are 613 commands in the Old Testament. One day I was bored and counted them. Thank you. Right. The most famous of the 613 are, of course, the Ten Commandments, which God gave to the children of Israel through Moses. And that's the famous, you know, Mount Sinai scene with the tablets, uh, with the words on them. Uh, so, in fact, G uh, many Jewish people saw the Ten Commandments as sort of a summary of the other 603. So Jesus answers the man's question, which ones, by listing five of the Ten Commandments. And so just so you see what he's doing here, I made a slide with the Ten Commandments on them. Um, we could go to, oh, the slide, yeah, never So Jesus replied like this. He said, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor like you love yourself. And here's, here's what's so interesting about Jesus' response. If you look at the Ten Commandments, they're sort of grouped into two clusters. The first four have to deal with an individual's relationship to God, and then the other six have to do with people's relationships to one another. And so in his response, Jesus quotes five of the six that have to do with people's relationships to one another, and he omits one. So Jesus responds to the man with these five of the six, and then the man says to Jesus, I have kept all of these commandments, said the young man. What do I still lack? So, Jesus, I, I'm sensing that whatever this life is that I'm supposed to be experiencing, I'm not fully there, so I'm doing everything you just said. What am I missing? Jesus responds this way. He says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. And this is really a fascinating exchange if you stop to think about it because it contains the words eternal life and heaven, but Jesus uses them in an unexpected way, at least unexpected to us. His response really doesn't answer the question, how can I get to heaven? And here's why. When the man asks about eternal life, he isn't really talking about going somewhere else when he dies. He's talking about his life here 
and now. And so to Jesus, the image of heaven was deeply connected to something that the Jewish people called this age and the age to come. And so this age is like the time we're in right now. The age to come would be whatever happens on the other side of this life. And and so seeing the present and future in terms of two ages wasn't new with Jesus. He came from a line of prophets going back hundreds of years who believed and taught that God was at work and that history was heading somewhere. Not just their history as a nation, but the history of the world. The Jewish people, for centuries before Jesus, believed that God had not abandoned the world and that a new age was coming. Matter of fact, just to kind of give you a little oversight of what the Old Testament contains, there's a prophet named Isaiah who wrote that one day, in this age to come, there would be peace on earth and people would neither harm nor destroy one another and that God would wipe away the tears from all faces. Another Old Testament prophet named Amos wrote, of that age to come. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. And there's countless other options if if you start reading these Old Testament prophets about the age to come and what it's going to be like. And if you said to me, can you sort of distill down what they're talking about? The, the, The word that I would choose would be, well, it would be earthy. What's it going to be like on the other side? It's, it's going to be earthy, wine and crops and grain and feasts and buildings. It's like this world, but it's not like this world that we've ever experienced. It's this world, but rescued, transformed, and renewed. A few years back, um, I had lunch with a professor of systematic theology who was way smarter than me uh, named Michael Whitmer. He's up at Grand Rapids Theological Seminary. Uh, we ate at Ming 10, and it was an epic feast, just so you know. Um, but one of the things that we talked about was, was this idea of how often in the West we think of heaven as somewhere else and someplace else, and the Jewish people didn't seem to think that way, and he pointed me to a book that he had written recently called In Christ Alone, because he was apparently getting this question. Here's a quote from that book. Uh, he wrote this. He said, Jewish prophets did not talk about a future life somewhere else. They anticipated a coming day when the world would be restored, renewed, and redeemed, and there would be peace on earth. Much of the prophet's vision of the age to come then wasn't really new. To the Jewish people, it was a recapturing of what God had in mind when he created the first people and placed them in a garden and charged them with overseeing an unfolding creation. Steward it. Manage it well. So for Jesus and the prophets, human participation was, is, and always will be critical to the story that God is telling with the human race. And if you think about what the prophet said, I mean, for there to be new wine, someone has to crush the grapes. And for a city to rebuilt, be rebuilt, someone has to cut down the timbers and construct the houses. And so to the prophets, I mean, they, and to Jesus, they would say, you know, God has been looking for partners in making the world all that he wants it to be since the very beginning. People who will care for the earth and each other in loving ways. And so the Jewish prophets set their hope on the God who doesn't give up on creation, but who engages a broken world and brings it back to what he intended it to be. So whenever we talk about heaven, whenever we read or think about Jesus and his relationship to the concept of heaven... We need to begin with the first century Jewish audience because they didn't talk about a future life somewhere else. 
They anticipated a day when this world would be restored. This world would be renewed. And, and so when a man comes to Jesus 2,000 years ago and, and asks, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What he's really asking is, Jesus, how can I make sure that I'm actively being a part of the new thing that God is going to do? How can I become the sort of person that God will trust with more and more responsibility as this story moves forward? And, and in Jesus' day, the standard answer was to live the commandments. It's like God has shown you the best way to live. Just do that. The more you become a person of peace, the more you become a person of justice, the more you become a person of generosity, the more you align your heart with the heart of God, the more actively you'll participate in bringing heaven here in this age, and the more ready you will be for the age to come. So the man comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the commandments. And the guy says, which ones? And, and then Jesus lists some commandments. Five of the six that deal with people's relationships to one another, but he omits one. And the one he omits is really, really interesting because it gives us a window into what's going on in this man's heart and, and what made him ask the question in the first place. When Jesus gives him the response, he omits the commandment that forbids covetousness. There's a command that says, you know, don't covet. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or oxen or donkey or whatever. But to covet is basically to crave what someone else has. Covetousness is that disease of always wanting more. And it's rooted in a profound dissatisfaction with the life that we have. I don't want to be me. I want to be them. And so the man says he's kept all the commands that Jesus mentions, but Jesus hasn't mentioned the command about coveting. And so Jesus cuts right to it. He says, okay, well, if you want to be perfect, what you got to do is sell your stuff and give the money to the poor. And you say, well, that, that seems kind of specific. And did Jesus tell anybody else to do that? No, he didn't, because that, that wasn't their issue. That was this man's issue. This man hasn't realized that it's his sacred calling to use his resources to move creation forward and bring a bit of heaven here. He's caught up in what he wants, and he doesn't realize the potential he has. And so the man isn't up for the challenge, and it's an extreme challenge to say the least. And so he sort of walks away. All of this, a conversation that's steeped in language of of heaven. So what does Jesus mean when he says heaven? Well, Jesus consistently affirmed heaven as a real place and space within creation. It's the place and space where God's will and only God's will is done. It's God's kingdom where he's the king. And if you're in a kingdom and you're the king, then what you say goes. So heaven is the realm where everything is exactly as God wants it to be, where only his will is done, which brings us to earth. And on earth, maybe you've noticed there are a lot of wills that are done, right? Your will, my will, your boss's will, the mayor's will. There's all kinds of wills, and they're often competing. And as a result, currently, heaven and earth are not one. That doesn't surprise any of us, right? And that's why, along with praying to our God our Father in heaven, Jesus wants us to pray, God, may your kingdom come 
and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus wants his followers to pray for and to work for and to leverage their resources for an invasion of the way of heaven into our here and now. He wants us to fight to bring heaven here, to live in a way that invites God's rule and reign into our reality. And you may have never thought about it in these terms, but I mean, each of us has a kingdom. There's a place and a space where our will is done, where we exercise authority and we can shape the experiences of those under our authority. And Jesus says to his first followers, I want you to align your kingdom with the kingdom of heaven. I want you to align your heart with God's heart. And when you do that, every step you take and every move you make, that's a little five cents to sting there, right? Every step, heaven can invade your kingdom. More grace, more love, more patience, more justice, more generosity, more peace in your home, in your workplace, in your relationships, in your neighborhood. Somebody better say amen, I'm getting fired up, right? It's like, what if it was like we were going to fight for, we were going to work for, we were going to pray for the way of heaven to invade in Ada as it is in heaven, in Lowell as it is in heaven, go Rodero's, right? In Forest Hills as it is in, in Grand Rapids as it is in heaven, in, in America as it is in heaven. What if a whole bunch of us said, you know what? God, I want the way of heaven to be a present in my here and now. And I realize that I have responsibility. I have potential. I have some authority. And the older I get, the more authority I seem to have to sort of shape the experiences of those around me. So God, may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May my life be a part of bringing heaven here. And isn't that inspiring? Isn't that way more inspiring than thinking about sitting on a cloud with a harp, right? You start to say, there, it, it's so much more than that. Jesus wants us to align our kingdoms with the kingdom of God. That, friends, is the invitation that surfaces in the Lord's Prayer. And by the way, um, the Bible writers point to a future day when what we can experience in small ways now comes in fullness, the day when heaven and earth really will be one, and there will only be one will, and it will be God's will. The last book in the New Testament, it's a letter written by a Jesus follower named John to Christians living in modern-day Turkey. And as best we can tell, uh, it's, been a, it's, it's written during a time where Christians are, are under incredible persecution by the Roman Empire, and John, who was one of Jesus' first disciples, ends up in exile on an island off the coast of the city of Ephesus. And when he's there, he has a vision of this future reality when, when the age to come comes in fullness. And, and here's, what, here's what John writes. And again, it's, it's an inspiring, powerful image of that day. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And sea in the ancient world was confusion, chaos. So he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. So Jesus teaches his followers to pray that the kingdom would come and the will would be done here and now as it is in heaven. While at the same time they look forward to the day, we look forward to the day when heaven and earth truly do become one and the king ascends his throne and everything is as it should be for the first time in a long time. Jesus wants us to pray this way because how we think about heaven really can make an impact in our lives here and now. And if you were to ask me how, I would, I would simply offer this. If we're waiting to be rescued from this world to go somewhere else for life with God to begin, if that's, if that's sort of the heartbeat of what it means to follow Jesus, then we're not easily inspired to do much for this world. It's sort of like a, a, a waiting game. But if we come to see that eternal life, the sort of life that begins now and extends forever, if we come to see that eternal life doesn't start when we die, it starts here and now, then we start to see the invitation God has made to each one of us to partner with him in the here and now to enable his kingdom to come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because since the beginning, God has been looking for partners, and that is the same invitation he brings to each of us. So, so what does this mean for you? Like, what does this mean for you this coming week? What does this mean for you in your family? What does this mean for you in your work? What does this mean for you in your neighborhood? What does this mean for you in your community? I, I, would, I would just ask you to consider that this beautiful invitation made by your perfect heavenly father to leverage your life to make this place a little bit better. And we're not going to get there all the way, but we're sort of in training for the age to come as we serve alongside of him, as we align our heart with his heart, and as we begin to taste a bit of what it's like when life is as God intended it to be. I want to end our time um, with two quotes to sort of summarize what we've covered. The first is another from Professor Whitmer from his book, In Christ Alone, and I, I you know, offer that to you. It's a great resource if you're interested in more of this. Um, and the second is from a modern-day prophet who many of you have heard of. His name is Bono. Anybody know him? Yeah, U2 singer guy? Okay, here we go. So first the, the trained guy with the PhDs and then Bono. Here's what Mike Whitmer says. He says, The Bible never speaks of heaven as the end game, but repeatedly says that Jesus will return to restore this creation and live with his people on a new earth. Unlike the leaders of many other religions who declare that the good stuff happens high up and far away, Jesus says that the kingdom of God comes to earth. Or, more precisely, that it has come, that it is coming, and it will finally come. And now from Bono. Years ago, he was interviewed, and he said this. A lot of people are happy with pie in the sky when they die. But I don't think that's our purpose. 
Our purpose is to bring heaven to earth in the micro as well as the macro. In every detail of our lives, we should be trying to bring heaven to earth. Have the peace that passes understanding at the center of yourself, but do not be at peace with the world because the world is not a happy place for most people living on it. And then he says this, and the world is more malleable, more shapeable than you think. And we can wrestle it from fools. And you just want to drop the mic there. Isn't that great? Yeah, we can wrestle it from fools. Friends, we are on a mission from our Heavenly Father to take whatever authority that we have and to make things under our authority more like he wants it to be. That is what we're here for, and that is what Jesus means when he talks about heaven. Would you stand? And I'll close us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And everyone said, amen. Friends, go in peace. We'll see you next week for part three of the prayer.